Are you a religious person? If the answer is yes, then this video is for you. If the answer is no, this video is still also for you. Today we'll be learning Colossians chapter 2 verses 10 through 23 and we'll be looking specifically at rules, rituals, religion, and most importantly, relationship. What is the relationship between rules, ritual, and religion and what is our relationship with Christ supposed to be like. That is what we will look at today in Colossians chapter 2. Before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence today, and I pray that as we read your word that you would teach us the truth about yourself. Help us to understand how we can have a relationship with you. Help us to know whether rules and rituals are important or not, and if they are, which ones are. Lord, we pray that through this passage, you would give us understanding and wisdom about who you are. Lord, for everyone who is going to listen to this or watch it, Lord, we pray that you would open their hearts, Lord, to receive the truth from your word, and we know that your word will not return void. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us get into the passage, and first we will read verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A moment we read the rest of this, which more talks more about the rules and the rituals aspect. So let's discuss this part first in 11 through 15. It says <clears throat> that you are a circumcision made without hands. So circumcision was a topic Paul often returned to throughout the epistles. This is because the Jews had been conditioned over a long period of time to believe that circumcision, the ritual, made them better than other people and more acceptable to God. They even used a term uncircumcised to describe the pagan or the heathen, or those without a relationship to God. So originally, circumcision, it was a sign of the covenant between God and his chosen people, the Jews. But we should note that Abraham believed in God and had a relationship with God prior to ever being circumcised. So by the time Paul came around, faith had been discounted among Jews, and the tradition of circumcision was exalted. The Jews, many of them thought that just by following the law religiously, they could merit God's favor. So they followed many traditions. Circumcision, washing of hands, keeping the Sabbath, offering sacrifices, many external things. But in the meantime, their hearts were not regenerated. So in the New Testament, we see very, very clearly that external rituals do not please God. It's not only the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, God says that you honor me with your lips, right? And you, you offer these sacrifices to me, but they don't mean anything because your heart is not in it. The problem is little awareness of sin and thus little repentance. 
Little trust in Christ and much trust in and reliance upon self and one's ability to do many, many good works. So in Paul's letters, he's always reminding them that God is not and never was primarily concerned with the ritual of circumcision or for that matter, any other ritual. What God did care about was the circumcision of the heart. And even in the Old Testament, we see that. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts. Okay, circumcision without hands. That is the circumcision made without hands. Okay, what is that? What is this circumcision made without hands? It's the transformation of one's heart through faith in Christ, which results in old flesh being put off. We can see it more in Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he is the one who washes, cleanses, regenerates, transforms us. Salvation is not and never was accomplished through good works or the law. It's accomplished through God's mercy. So, Paul is saying that you were transformed in your hearts, not as a result of a ritual. In fact, many of the people in these New Testament churches, they were not Jews and they had not ever been circumcised. So when it's talking about circumcision, it's saying your heart has been changed. Yours is one made without hands. That is the most important one. What's the application for us? Even as we consider this aspect of rituals, Are we in any way relying on our own good works to merit favor with God? Now, in the church today, circumcision is not the ritual that most people pay attention to. But there are other rituals. For Catholics, they have like seven key ones. But one is going to Mass. Do you go to Mass? For Protestants, do do you take communion regularly? That's a ritual. Or have you been baptized? Or even... Some people, they rely on going to church, reading the Bible, praying. I was recently reading a statistic about a survey done in evangelical churches and a very large number, I don't remember the percentage, but it was over 50%, I believe, of people believe they could be saved by good works. That is when the question is asked, how will you enter into heaven or how can you be saved? People give an answer such as, I go to church or I've been baptized or I read the Bible or I go to prayer meetings and all of these things. So there's something in human nature that wants us to rely on ourselves for salvation. And so for the Jews, they're relying on circumcision because that was their like most important ritual. They're relying on keeping the law. For us today, people may be relying on something else, going to church or something else, but they're still relying on themselves. So are we relying? Are you relying on your good works in any way. A good work can become a ritual, even an idol that we can place our faith in that good work and prioritize it over our relationship with Christ. Sometimes we also become judges and we judge others who do not do the same ritual or follow the same rule that we do. So our good deeds, we should do them, but we should do them as a loving response to God's grace rather than a prideful habit. So spend some time to pray to God 
and confess any prideful attitude or reliance on self. If you find that you've been relying on yourself in some way, then just pray and confess that to God and thank God for his undeserved mercy and grace. All right, let's go forward. Verses 12 through 13. It says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. I had my mouse on one of my children's little animal books, and it was uh, talking to me while I'm trying to share, which was a little distracting. I hope you couldn't hear that. All right, let's go forward. Uh, What does this mean, being buried with him and raised with him in baptism? Uh, Let's look at Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul uses the symbolism of baptism to give a picture of a believer's life before and after conversion. So baptism is a symbol of the old life being washed away, the sins being washed away, and that's represented by the person being immersed in water and then coming up. And when you come up, that's a symbol for the new life that you have in Christ. So in a similar way, Jesus was buried in the tomb. That's his old body. It died. And then he rose again, right? The third day. And when he came out, he came out with a new life and a new body. So for believers, we have a radical transformation of our lives when we are born again. The old self is gone. We have new life in Christ. Verse 13 reinforces that. It says, you were you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So about the issue of rituals, here Paul's not saying the ritual of baptism saves you. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, is that baptism represents that spiritual transformation of the heart, which God does, right? He says, God did it. God made you alive together with him. God forgave you from your sins. It's not something you can earn through any ritual, including baptism, but that ritual is important, right? He commands us to be baptized. That's important. We should be baptized. That is obedient to him. But the baptism is a response in obedience Uh, to what he's already done in our hearts. And it's a symbol of that, what he's done in our hearts. So rituals can be very, very important, very helpful for reminding us of those spiritual realities. But we need to be careful that the physical, tangible ritual does not take more importance um, than the spiritual reality, which it is meant to represent. So, what does this mean? It means when we place our faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Before that, we are dead spiritually. That means we have no ability to please him at all. No ability to do good works. Uh, Isaiah says our good works were as filthy rags. Completely separated from him, no spiritual life at all. It's not, you don't just need to turn over a new leaf or through sheer willpower overcome your sins. If you try to do it on your own, if you rely on yourself, whether through any ritual you do, then all the weight of that is on yourself. 
So instead of relying on yourself, we need to come to him and say, please do it for me because I cannot do it for myself. And when we do that, he saves us. Okay, He washes away our sins. And look at verse 14, how beautiful it is. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Beautiful. Our application should be twofold. Firstly, thank God for the work he's done in our hearts. Secondly, walk in newness of life. After coming to salvation, you have the resources that you need to win the battle against sin. We need to take advantage of those. So sometimes victory over temptation could be as simple as praying a short prayer to God for help. Help me. That is a symbol like, God, I'm not relying on myself. I need you to help me. Please give me the strength. I want to talk for a moment about this, canceling the record of debt. That's a beautiful thing. And and debt is another way that Paul uses to describe our situation prior to faith in Christ. It's something we can relate to uh, in the world today. You can imagine if if a person racks up a big gambling debt, And he goes to casino halls and he borrows money from his family members and friends and he goes and he gambles it away and he loses it and he maxes out all his credit cards and he he keeps trying to win it back but he digs himself into a bigger and bigger hole so deep he's not going to be able to work his way out of it. The sum of money he owes is so vast his salary will never be enough to pay it off. And this is like a weight on him. It's an oppressive weight while this debt is on him. It crushes his spirit, crushes his joy, affects his relationship with those around him. There seems no way out, no light at the end of the tunnel. But then he meets a very rich guy. And the rich guy writes a blank check and tells him, your debt is paid. The man's ecstatic. All of the burden removed. He's free. But the rich guy also says, don't gamble anymore, right? So you're forgiven But there's also an expectation that you shouldn't go back and repeat the same foolish mistake. How presumptuous would it be if a person was forgiven that debt and they immediately go back to the casino and gamble again and then believe or expect that that person is going to pay off their debt again? That would be highly presumptuous and we should not presume upon God's grace and mercy. When he forgives us, he forgives our debts. He takes the consequences onto our own shoulders. He, he, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We should say, wow, he loved us. We should respond by loving him. We can't pay it back. It's not a matter of paying it back. That's not possible. But that act of love should in turn motivate us to love him in return and to live your life differently. If you don't live your life differently, then you don't really appreciate the gift at all. If you have children, you've probably heard them say, and that's unfair. That's not fair. Uh, I hear that quite a bit. And sometimes I ask them, do you really want fair? Is fairness what we're looking for? Is that what we're striving for? Like, what is fair? Fair means we keep our debt. We keep our sin. We keep our guilt. We keep our judgment and condemnation. We keep it ourselves, and we try to solve it ourselves. We can't. That's fair. Fair is I face judgment. Fair is I go to hell because of my sin. I don't want fair. I want grace. I want mercy. And that's what Christianity is about. It's not about 
us working our way to God through rituals. It's about His grace and His mercy. Now, as we go through this, we'll see this even more. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So he won, okay? He won the battle. He won the war. He beat all opposition. Christ is victorious. Amen. Let's read verses 16 through 19, which talks more about this question of rules and rituals. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. All right, let's dive into this verse by verse. This looks like the Colossian church was starting to face some kind of division, likely brought about by some false doctrines that were working their way into the church. Believers began to divide over some of these issues and accuse each other and pass judgment on one another. Christians are not immune to pride, and sometimes we suffer the same sense of self-righteousness that the Pharisees did. Uh, the Corinthian believers, for example, were very proud. that Some of them were like, I'm of Apollos, and others are, I'm of Paul, and others are like, hmm, I just follow Christ. So it seems like in a similar way, these Colossian believers, some of them are like, I don't drink alcohol, or I keep the Sabbath, or I won't eat unclean food. And in thus doing, they were actually going beyond acting out their own convictions, which is good, and then instead use these to accuse and to look down on believers who didn't follow their same ideas. In some areas, God gives us freedom. So it says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or about a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, don't worry about what other people think. Don't live to please people. Live to please God. Now, let's get into this a little bit. Jesus gave us freedom to eat all kinds of foods, Mark seven nineteen. Now, some believers still prefer to keep the Old Testament laws. I know some. And they believe that God gave these laws for health and sanitary reasons, among other reasons. They believe it's healthier to follow those standards, and so they don't eat pork or some other foods, shrimp or crabs or other things that is against the Old Testament law. Is that okay for them not to do that? Of course, they don't have to. There's no command which says, thou must eat pork. There's no command like that. God never says, you must eat those foods. You can if you want to, but if you choose to follow the Old Testament law and not eat those foods, that is also okay, although you should not place your faith in that to save you. So if you want to do it, that's fine, but do not look down on those who do it differently. So if you are someone who doesn't eat pork or shrimp, that's fine. But don't then say, I don't eat pork or shrimp in that kind of you know, self-righteous attitude or go around and say, whoa, you eat pork, you heathen. We shouldn't do that toward others. Keeping the Sabbath is another example given in these verses. 
This command is not repeated in the New Testament, and Paul makes it clear in Romans 6.15 that we are not under the Old Testament law. I believe that we are not required to keep the Sabbath today, although there is some universal principle there that is good to spend time set aside to the Lord. Of course, it's also good to have a time of rest. We shouldn't be working seven days a week, 24-7 all the time. We need a time to rest. That's very, very clear. And we also need to set the Lord as first priority. But I don't believe we are commanded to never do any work whatsoever on the Sabbath day in New Testament times. So what about a believer who decides not to go to work on Saturday or Sunday, spends the day in prayer and meditation? Is that wrong? Of course, it is not wrong. That's a good thing to do. But such a person should not look down on believers and say, Oh, hmm, after church, you went to the park, didn't you? Oh, you played a board game with your family. Hmm, interesting. And they judge believers who do not keep their same personal conviction, which is not a command in the Bible. God is the judge. The Bible is his word, and his word does act as a judge over us. So where God has clearly spoken, we should be dogmatic. If the Bible is very clear, be dogmatic. But where he has not, then we must strive to maintain unity. And that's very important. Ephesians 4.3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain unity. Something you have to work at and be diligent to do. And an enemy of unity is self-righteousness and judgment. Now, there are many such things where you might have convictions or personal preference. Some believers keep Lent. Some do not. Some celebrate Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, Palm Sunday. That's like these festivals, or, and then some do not. Some keep the Old Testament festivals still. Some do not. Some say, don't drink any alcohol, and then some take some. Some play uh, games, or play cards, or dance, or watch television, and some say, ooh, Christians shouldn't do that. Some dress up in a suit on Sundays, and then some wear shorts and a shirt. Some prefer the King James Version of the Bible, and some say other translations are more modern and easier to understand and are still accurate. Some say, thou must homeschool, always. Of course, the Bible doesn't say thou must homeschool. You can have that conviction, and you can do that, and there are many good reasons to do so. But we need to be careful when we have these personal preferences or convictions on things the Bible does not say 100% thou must do or thou must not do, that we don't take our own preferences for our own families and then apply those to other people and judge them. So that's what this says. Let no one pass judgment on you. So don't live to please others when they judge you about these things. The implication would also be do not judge others about these things either. Why? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what is the lesson here? Focus on Christ, okay? Christ alone. Christ is the one who's important. He is worth, ar- he is worth arguing about, meaning, um, for example, someone says, oh, he's not divine or he's not human. That's worth arguing about, right? That's worth debating. But many things are not worth debating. So the heart of our faith is not about these external rules or rituals. 
Someone might say, I'm very religious. I have 53, you know, rules that I follow every week. Okay, that, that's religion, but that's not necessarily a relationship with Christ. What is a ritual? A ritual is a means to an end. The end should be a closer relationship with Christ. Now, the Pharisees did the rituals to demonstrate their righteousness, but they did so to impress people, to please people, but they were far from God. They dressed up, their nice clothes, their phylacteries, that's the, you know, the little cloth uh, things tied at the end of their garments, and they had these very long, when they fasted, they, they showed it through, you know, not washing their face and having unkempt hair, and they would go around and people, oh, what's the matter with you? I'm fasting. Yeah, I've been fasting for several days now. Uh, three days, 14 hours, uh, 27 minutes, 12 seconds. That's how long I've been fasting. You know, they're, they're doing rituals, but it wasn't bringing them closer to God. <clears throat> so our Christian faith is not about being religious. It's not about following certain rules or rituals. It's about Christ. If a ritual brings you closer to Christ, by all means, do it. If you find that Christmas is a way for you to come closer to Christ, to remember him, remember Jesus born as a baby, remember the incarnation, and you, then, then great, do that. But also think about how you celebrate Christmas. Is the way you're celebrating it bringing you closer to Christ or not? Don't just copy-paste from what the world is doing. This is a very secular festival a lot of times. So whatever you're doing, think about, does this bring you closer to Christ? And if that ritual does not bring you closer to Christ, then evaluate, should you even be doing it at all? These are a shadow of the things to come. In other words, these are not the most important. Don't focus on the shadow, focus on the real thing. It says, but the substance belongs to Christ. Our faith is not about rules, not about commands, not about festivals. It's not about going to church, symbols, not about wearing a cross or a dove or wearing Christian jewelry. It's not about performing good deeds. It's not about baptism or communion or heaven or reading the Bible. It is about relationship with Christ. So if you do all the rest, but have no relationship with Christ, you're missing the whole point. And in fact, you've perverted the truth from God and you've created a man-made religion. These are means to an end. The Bible, wonderful. It's great, but it's a way to bring us to God. You could read the Bible 10 hours a day and have it get you further from God than ever before. If you read the Bible for 10 hours a day and get puffed up and get arrogant get rude, judgmental, proud, and trust in yourself, in your Bible knowledge, okay? Answer all the questions that are asked in the school first about the Bible. You trust in yourself. That Bible is not helping you at all. The Bible should be a way to bring us closer to Christ. Heaven is not the end goal. Heaven is a place where we can see Christ face to face. Come, uh, communion is a ritual to remember what Christ has done for us. Christian symbols are reminders of what Christ has done for us. How can you pursue Christ? What's the lesson? What's the application? Well, think about the rituals that you are doing. When you worship God, is your heart in it? When you go to church, does it bring you closer to Christ? Think about these things. Think about your goal and your motivation that will help you to go for the right reason. One simple thing I like to do before I go to church on Sundays is pray on the way. And I ask God to to teach me during that time. I ask him to give, I ask him to give me an open heart. I ask him to bring me into that 
place of worship and to give to me what he wants to give to me that Sunday from his word. So it's just a time of preparing my heart so that when I come to church, I'm not just doing it as a weekly ritual, but as a way to come closer to him. Let's go forward. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Paul's referring to false teachers who want to lead them away from Christ. The prize for us is having a close relationship with Christ. Now, we could think about it this way. Ephesians 5 compares marriage to uh, our relationship with Christ. That is, Christ marries the church as a husband marries his wife. It's It's an illustration. So what is the husband's prize? The husband's prize is not the flowers, the dress, the music, or the food, or the decorations. Those are nice, but they're not the key focus of the wedding. Recently, I was involved in a wedding, um, officiating, and basically saying, you know, some mistakes might might be made. Uh, something might happen in the ceremony. Um, in fact, it did. There was a, a mic issue. But in the end of the day, you're still going to be married, and, and that doesn't matter, right? What's important is each other, and you're getting married. So let's focus on that. So imagine a man who goes to his wedding in a spectacular, best, world-class cooking, 10-tier tall cake, top bands in the world playing live music. Um, He rents out the Hofburg Palace in Austria for the ceremony. Everything just perfect. But one problem. He's tricked. His bride doesn't show up. The man says, whoa, I've been defrauded of the prize. So That man doesn't care at that point what kind of decorations there are or how pretty they are. None of that can cover up for the fact that there's something missing. It's a pretty empty and meaningless event because the bride isn't there. That's what it's like if we allow false teaching to shift our focus away from Christ and focus on these external matters or these rituals. It says, let no one disqualify you. Or some translations say, let no one defraud you. In other words, don't be misled into these things. And he mentions several things. He mentions asceticism, that is self-debasement, sorry, self-abasement. That means to deny yourself for the sake of denying yourself. That's not beneficial. Spiritual pride can come in when we follow rules, hoping to earn merit from God. So there have some been in the history of the church who use like self-flagellation, which is like a whip, and they whip themselves with it, and they think through beating themselves, they can somehow get closer to God. Martin Luther, before he came to Christ, did such kinds of things, going through all kinds of self-torture, basically, in order to earn merit with God. And then, you know, went to Rome, and as he was climbing up uh, the steps, basically kissing every single step on the way, muttering some, you know, reciting some prayers. And he realized later, like, like this doesn't bring me close to God. It's, it's worthless. And he realized it's about Christ. Self-abasement. Fasting. There's a place for it. Denying yourself specific things for a period of time. There's a place for it. It can be useful if you give that extra time to worship the Lord. But if you just use that time to go and watch some movies and then you tell your friends, I'm fasting, that's not going to help you that much. Another thing is worship of angels. A preoccupation with angels distracts us from glorifying Christ. Jesus is the center of our faith, not angels. Let's be thankful God sent angels to work in the world on our behalf, 
but we must not lose sight of the king of the angels. We're going on in details about visions. Some people care more about pursuing visions and dreams than they do about pursuing Christ. Christ should be the focus. And if you go to some sites like Amazon and you search for Christian books, some of the very top ones are people talking about their visions. Oh, I, you know, I went to heaven and I came back. I went to hell and I came back and this is what it's like. There was one guy boasting about, you know, he went to hell, he defeated Satan, and then all of, you know, when he defeated Satan, then basically he stopped all sin in the world. You can take one look around in the world and see, okay, this is not the case. This is someone who is puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So false teachers, they try to distract you with all kinds of external and surfacey things that will not bring you closer to Christ. You know, angels, self-abasement, all these things, but they don't really help. Let's come back to verse 19. It says, Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Here is the core problem. People do not hold fast to the head. Our focus must be Christ. We must hold fast to him. We are Christian, not a cross chin or a church chin or a Bible chin. We are to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, not a John Piper chin or a John MacArthur chin either. A Christian. We are to follow Christ. He is the one who causes us to grow spiritually. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So, what are you holding fast to? Are you holding fast to some person? Are you holding fast to some ritual? Are you holding fast to the head? The head is Christ. He is the center. Now, let's go forward. We will finish soon. We're going to look at 20 through 23, which tells us do not exalt legalism as spiritual. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, let us go through this. Verse 20 talks about dying to the elemental spirits of the world. What are these? I believe these are people's ideas which sound wise and lofty, but are in fact as limited as we are. Because it calls it spirits, it's, it's showing that there's something behind it. It's probably a satanic, a demonic force, a demonic spirit which is bringing out these ideologies which we should not succumb to. Man-made religion is filled with these ideas. Let me give you an example. Here's an elemental spirit of the world, an elemental principle. This idea, and I believe it comes also from you know demonic origins, and that is that you can in some way make up for the sin that you've done. There's this idea of this scale, this cosmic scale. You need to do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad ones. Where did this idea come from? Almost every culture has this idea. Recently, I went to Egypt for a day in between China and the United States. And 
I was looking at their hieroglyphics, and many of the hieroglyphics show this this scale, this balance, and basically putting your good deeds on or putting your heart on one side and seeing, you know, how good it is, how good you are. And if you're good enough, then you can pass into the afterlife. This is one of the elemental spirits of the world, people believing that they can save themselves through their own efforts. I went to Moody Bible Institute, and one of the papers that I did when I was in school is a research paper about the religions of the world. And very briefly, I looked at, you know, basically 50 religions in the world, and all of them except for Christianity had one thing in common. You can save yourself. You can work your way out. You can compensate for your sin. They have all different ways to phrase it, all different ways to do it, but that core idea was in all of them that you can do it. You can do it on your own if you try hard enough, if you push yourself hard enough. Only Christianity, only the Bible says, no, you can't do it on your own. You need help. That's where Christ comes in. So this is an elemental spirit of the world. And they then reduce a true relationship with God to a set of do's and don'ts. Do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. Okay, then, and then you'll be good. So this is how people like to think. But it doesn't actually bring people closer to God. These rules, in fact, shift our attention away from Christ and then onto self. And that's where Satan wants us to put our attention is onto ourself. Then we focus on our own ability to fulfill these rules rather than on Christ's power to forgive us when we fail. Um, Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress demonstrated that too with, with Christian coming to the mountain. And on that mountain was all of these legalistic rules to follow. So many do's and don'ts. And the mountain crushed him under its weight because we cannot fulfill all of those rules. In fact, that's what the Old Testament is supposed to show us. There are, I can't remember, but my mind's telling me 573 commands in the Old Testament. Uh, We'll say give or take about 100. Those rules show us you can't do it. You can't do it. Only Christ fulfilled the law all the way. Okay, so where we couldn't do it and where we failed, he was successful. Therefore, we need to place our faith in him. So verse 21, it says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things sound spiritual, but they are not. They are not. It says these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They sound spiritual, but they're not because they promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made rules and standards appear wise because we're men and we made up these ideas, but man-made religion cannot bring us closer to God or take away the sin which separates us from him. These things even cannot keep us from fleshly indulgence. So at the beginning of this, I asked you, are you a religious person? Are you religious? Is Christianity religion? I think it's a relationship, not a religion. We have a relationship with Christ. Let us not rely on rules and rituals to bring us to the Lord. Instead, let us place our faith in him and ask him to forgive us our sins 
and then rely on Him to live a victorious and holy Christian life. Because we love Him because He first loved us, not by our own power, but by His. Do not trust in a ritual to save you. Instead, trust in Jesus. Let Him be the center. Let Him be the focus of everything that we do. I hope that you will join us next time. We'll continue forward in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Before we end, let us say a word of prayer. I will pray here, but I would encourage you to pray in your own heart to the Lord and also bring what you've learned to Him today. Heavenly Father, we look at the world and we see that many people try to come to you through religion. They're trusting in themselves in some way, in some ritual that they do. Today we learn that it is not rituals which save us. Uh, these things are a means to an end. If we do them, Lord, help us to think about why and help these things to bring us to you. Help us to focus on Christ in all that we do. Let you be the center of our home, our church, and our lives as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is my daughter, Allison, and she would like to ask you a question. Would you please like and subscribe? Thank you. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.